Um, so we've got Jesus um, on this last night. Um, he's eaten the supper with the disciples. He's told them that they're all going to fall away, and Peter's argued with him about it. And uh, he goes on into the garden. We're, we're dealing now with very late into the evening. Mark 14. Mark 14, 32, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and he takes just his three closest friends, I would say, with him into the, into the deeper part of the garden. And, and uh, you know, this is really a critical moment for Jesus. I mean, when you, uh, when something... When you're expecting something really bad and painful, how does that make you feel? Maybe tense. Or tense. Anxious. We've got a word for that. You experience what? Anxious. Yeah. Dread was my word. Yeah. You know, because... And, and, and think... That's a good word. Yeah. Well, have you ever been in a situation where... Uh, Dreading something was almost worse than the thing itself. Now, I don't think that was true with Jesus, because what could be worse than the thing itself in this case? But the dread and the the moments he passed in the garden were very painful and very difficult. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows that it's going to be extremely difficult. He's been dreading it perhaps all his life, and certainly over the last few weeks of his life and months, he's been talking about it more and more. So that's the, the background. So would somebody read 32 to 42? They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved, to the point of death, remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Okay. So what here shows you how difficult this is for Jesus? Says it is. Yeah, what does he say? He says that his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. That's pretty great. Jesus was not going to exaggeration. And he was not given to thinking about himself. And yet this is a very difficult moment. Jesus is being stretched to the limit. And um, the text in 33 says he began to be very distressed and troubled. This is a very difficult time for him. And what does he do in this difficult time emotionally? It to his God. Yeah, which is exactly the right thing to do. You, 
wouldn't be surprised Jesus would do the exactly right thing. <laughs> he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what thou will, what you will. Um, think about what that all is saying. That's a pretty significant prayer. And he prays it, you know, the three times. Abba, Father, what's Abba? Daddy. A little, a term, what I understand is a term that a little child would use of a father is almost an endearing term. It at least means fathers. The Aramaic term for father. I'm not sure how accurate what's always said is that it's such a close term for father as opposed to the Greek term for father. But it would have been what he would have said for father in his native language. You know, so, you know, Mark is giving us the actual word he used. He would have said Abba. Or Abba. So are you saying he only said Abba, all things are possible, and then added the Father's name? Not necessarily. He may have said Abba, Abba, Abba. Abba. yeah. Yeah, and, and or, or who knows? I mean... I'm not assuming that this exhausted his prayer. I mean, you know when we have reports of Jesus' words, we should not imagine that those are all the words. Often they're an abridgment. Um, I mean, you don't think about it. I mean, Jesus preached some sermons that we can read in, you know, five minutes or something like that. It doesn't mean it was a five-minute sermon. You know, it just means that's kind of giving us the synopsis of it. So, I suspect Jesus said a lot more than just this, but it gives us the idea. So, I don't know. Uh, you hear all the time that Abba is this endearing term for father. There's certainly debate about that. But it is the Aramaic term for father. So he's appealing to his father. And and he wants the cup removed from him. As in the first time he's talked about the cup. You remember uh, back in chapter 10, he spoke of the cup also. Uh, what's the cup? <clears throat> I think so. I think this, so many times in the Old Testament, you've got the symbolism of God's wrath as sort of a cup, like a poisonous, venomous potion that people drink to their own demise. So the cup comes to symbolize the wrath of God. You've got that especially in like Jeremiah 25, uh, Isaiah 51, uh, Ezekiel 23, Revelation 14, and quite a few more shorter references to the idea of the cup. And so I think he is going to be experiencing in himself God's punishment for man's sin. In some sense, he's going to sort of take the sins of mankind on himself. Not that he was personally guilty of them, but he's going to be punished for them. God's got to punish sin. And instead of punishing sin uh, in us, he punishes them in his son. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath that by rights we should have had to have drunk. Does that make any sense? Well, what does that mean then? What would it mean for Jesus to drink this cup of wrath or for him to be punished for our sins? He would be separated from his father. 
Isn't that the punishment our sins deserve? Death, not so much physical, but spiritual separation from God. wonder what that feels like. You ever felt that? I mean, I can't say that I've necessarily felt that at all. I know none of us can say that. We, we can't even imagine what it feels like, I'm sure. But, I mean, I, I would imagine the, the feeling of you're alone, completely, entirely alone. Yeah, and it's going to be worse than that. Nobody's felt that on the earth because the earth is blessed by the presence of God. You know, so everybody is blessed by God's presence here. Um, I think he's experiencing some sort of a torment, an agony, like we would experience were it not for the forgiveness that he gives us. Now, we are not told a lot of details about that. You know, you see Jesus on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That may be an indication that God's presence has turned away from him. But, what would you think about this? Have there ever been any times in history where Christians were going to be executed in a painful way and they knew it? Yeah. They knew they would be crucified. Some others had been crucified. Or hung. Or burned at the stake. Or thrown to the wild beasts. Or whatever. Have all Christians grieved to the point of death when they have stared this terrible torment in the face? What about Stephen when he was being stoned? Do you see him so deeply grieved and so very distressed and troubled? And and from what we can read, various Christians have when they experienced terrible deaths did so without going through such deep grief. I, my argument is <coughs> that Jesus' deep grief here is not primarily for the physical suffering. Because Jesus would surely have as much courage as Stephen or other Christian martyrs. I think Jesus was experiencing something much worse than what any martyrs ever experienced. Now perhaps God chose to have Jesus crucified, you know, executed in such a painful way as sort of a symbol of the deeper suffering he's feeling. Now, not everybody agrees with me on this. There's a, there's a line of brethren who argue that, that none of this is true, and that Jesus was not separated from God, and he did not experience, you know, the punishment for our sins. But it looks to me like the use of the term cup here is a strong argument in favor of that view. Well, what do they say when, he's, you, know, when you tell them, you know, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? There's a number of things that they say about that, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them say that that was the first line of Psalm 22, and he just said that to reference the psalm as a whole that he was fulfilling. Um, and other like arguments uh, that, that explain that in some other way than that he was actually being forsaken by his father. So. Okay, that they appeared, like one of them was, was something like, it appeared to them that he had been forsaken by God. And so that they're bringing that 
that's what appeared to be happening, but since he was in complete obedience, he couldn't have been. Uh, yes. I think that was the, the one. Yes. That yes. Pe people, the the one of the struggles people have is they cannot visualize how God could have ever forsaken Jesus. But if God was pleased to make him a sin offering and to punish sin in him, then God could have done that. In my in my judgment, the the arguments against this are not very strong. But those who hold to those and some good brethren hold to the other view on that. But I, I don't see it. So Jesus is deeply grieved. And what would he like from God? Well, he'd like for God to remove the cup from him. Ever thought about what that must have felt like to the Father when Jesus prayed like that? I mean, what would you do if your child begged you to take away something that was going to be very hard for them? Could God have done that? Things are possible for you. Yes, he could have. Now, sometimes our child may be suffering some terrible disease, and they want us to take away the pain and the suffering and the disease, and we don't have the means to do it. We'd love to, we would if we could, but we can't. But in this case, the father could and didn't. <laughs> because, thankfully, Jesus said, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus submitted to the will of his father. I see this as almost a time of temptation for Jesus. You know, I mean, he is struggling with the whole idea of what's going to happen. He's grieved by it. He's very distressed by it. He's begging God for mercy. And yet, he says, but your will be done. It's interesting because uh, <clears throat> not many of us have ever wrestled with the temptation not to be the savior of the world. <laughs> You know, but that's really what he's wrestling with. And not to go through then the punishment of being abandoned by God, a punishment that's worse than we could ever conceive of. What would you say about the fact that our sins separate us from God? So, like, in a sense, we are by our sin. We are, and yet we aren't. There is a separation in the relationship. However, God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust and sends the rain on the good and the bad. And really, what you see as banishment from the presence of God in a more complete way is like 2 Thessalonians 1.9 where the wicked will go into eternal torment banished from the face of God. So I think even those who are separated from God by relationship in this life are still in a world that's very blessed by God's presence. The punishment that sin deserves is a terrible punishment. It's a horrendous punishment. Think about what if Jesus hadn't come and I had to bear the punishment for my sins. In what I understand, that's what he bore for me. That's amazing. That some, people say that's not some people a lot of people say that's not true. <clears throat> so what do we bear? 
I'm not sure how to answer that. I'm always terrible with trying to explain and defend views I don't believe. <laughs> that is normally a problem. Um, you know, there have been several things written that might be helpful, some of which I couldn't tell you how to put your fingers on. But I believe there is a little appendix at the end of Bob Waldron's book, Sirs, We Would See Jesus, that goes through the opposite view and, and, and affirms it. Also, Dwayne Moyer has written several things about that, but I'm not sure where to find those things. Yeah, it might make more sense if you could read what they said. It is for some people. Yeah. Generally speaking, those I've heard try to uh, oppose that say it's Calvinistic. I don't see that, but that's that they would normally say that. What's going on with the disciples while Jesus is deeply grieved? Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? What was bad about the disciples sleeping at this time? <coughs> he asked them to keep watch. So they're disobeying Jesus, or to watch and sleep at the same time. Also, some of them, three of them at least, knew that he was deeply distressed. Doesn't seem very sympathetic, does it? Somebody says, I'm just really having a hard time. I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Would you please stay awake and pray for me? And a few minutes later, you go back <laughs> well, three times. And if I'm right, if they were if they were asleep and people, you know, people came in to kill Jesus, he wouldn't be able to fulfill the prophecy as planned. Right? Yes, although by that time, Jesus has left the garden. You know, or is leaving. I guess not left the garden. He's up and, you know, not praying anymore and they're with him. They probably couldn't have stopped the people from coming anyway. Right. But, but you know, maybe the more important thing for them is verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. I do think Jesus wanted their company and he wanted them to care enough about him to stay awake and pray with him. But but what he says is more for them. He knows they're going to need the spiritual strength. They need to be praying. They hurt themselves deeply when they don't listen to this and when they're asleep when they ought to be praying. They weren't troubled enough to pray and keep alert, and therefore they were vulnerable, and the terrible things happened that happened. I mean, they they weren't spiritually ready for what was going to take place. They should have listened to Jesus' advice. So it's, it's a betrayal of Jesus in some senses, but it's also very damaging to them spiritually. Comments and thoughts on this? What is meant by keep watch? What did he, I mean... What, was it was it kind of like a protection thing or more of a sit up with me because I'm miserable? Or, thought, yeah. But I, yeah but. I think it's more the idea of stay awake, stay alert, and pray. Hmm. Be spiritually vigilant. I don't think he means be a lookout. I mean, 
be sober, be vigilant, in First Peter 5.8, your adversary of the devil walks about. So, and, and there's some other passages too that connect watching and praying. I think the watching is the idea of being on the alert, to be spiritually, you know, tuned in. This was like midnight, two in the morning, something like that. Was it? It was not the middle of the day. You no, know, it's not the middle of the day. I mean, they've already had the Passover meal, and Jesus already talked to him a long time. Then they go out. I don't believe there is anything that you know specifically says the hour. Although, you know, we've got to kind of figure out. Maybe just from the timing of things. He's going to go to um, what? What does he go to first? Like Annas or Caiaphas? It sounds like it confused. And then to the the other one, and then to the Sanhedrin. I mean, they're all kind of there together. But I mean, there's some time that takes place. He's uh, so. I mean, I would not think this is like. You know, it couldn't be as late as 4 or 5 in the morning, I don't think, and possibly get all that in before they take him to Pilate early in the morning. So, I mean, my guess would be maybe we're dealing with something around midnight. You know, and there's still a few hours of Jewish trial to go. But, you know, I don't know where the proof is. Yeah, it is midnight and an olive brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty well said. Well, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's how would a cock curl. I don't know the answer for that. In the morning and sun's coming up. Think in the morning. Unless you watch the television commercials where you have roosters crying in the middle of the night. But that's not the show. I don't know. All right. Any other (laughs) questions or comments on some of these things? He says in 41, uh, you know, now the time's come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of, hands of men, hands of, hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. The betrayer is here. So, so Jesus says, all right, now's the time. You know, Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. And he gets them up, and they go out to meet the betrayer and the uh, arrest party. All right, anything uh, through 42? All right, 43 to 52. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them, and one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Uh, then they all forsook him and fled. Now a, certain man, now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man uh, laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from the naked. So, the arrest party arrives. What does it consist of? Judas. Judas plus? 
numbers. Yeah. With what? Yeah. You've got quite a, a contingent here coming to arrest Jesus, you know, well armed uh, with Judas leading the way. What do you think about that? Yeah. That's the way it looks to me like. It's like, what, did they, what were they expecting? Of course, how many times have they tried to get Jesus and one way or another it hadn't worked so they're going to get him this time <laughs> maybe also the more people they have the more security they feel although there were there would have been Jesus plus the 11 so there that's would have true. been 12 12 adult males and you're trying to take one of them and I mean, that's true there is the idea there I mean I still think it's overkill but it's not quite as and, and it may depend on how many they had. I mean, my impression is we may be dealing with hundreds. Okay. But, really? I don't know. Yeah, because it was a... Well, uh, uses the word multitude. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think multitude means, you know, 30 or 40. I don't know about that. I should have one. That's interesting that... In one place, doesn't it talk about more how many there were or like... I don't... Not like an actual number, but... I don't remember. Is there a passage that says... It's something that said, like, it described it as, like, a Roman... Yeah. I don't know the word, but battalion or something yeah. like that. That's possible. They had possible. an estimate for how many that was. Did it include any of the chief priests and scribes and elders? Because it says they were from... Yeah, I don't know if some of the chief priests and elders another, accompanied it. Another account was in different... Uh, I'm not sure. Let's see here. Uh, in uh, John 18 and uh, thir- 3, Judas then having received the Roman cohort. Uh, Six hundred men, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So, so it wasn't the chief priests. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't know if any of them were there or not. I don't think any of the so accounts. you think it was just with their blessing? Yeah. I think we don't know that they were personally present also. So it could have been 300 to 600 Roman soldiers. It's a lot of soldiers. Yeah. Overkill is not, we need a bigger word. <laughs> not the overkill. You know, and... Overkill of all overkills? And there were a couple of things that particularly opened my eyes up in the film The Passion of the Christ. And one of them was the arrest scene. That helped me, even though I want to see it again. Uh, but it was more turbulent than I'd ever really thought much about. And when I stopped and thought about, thought about it, well, yeah, it would have been. I just never really thought that much. I mean, can you imagine all this multitude, all these people, clubs and spears and swords and whatever. I mean, how are they going to arrest Jesus? You know... This is this is kind of a rough group. Don't don't. I mean, you wouldn't expect that they are, you know, just very quietly, calmly putting their arm around Jesus and saying, "Come with me." This is kind of a it's kind of a tense, stressful situation. Peter draws the sword, and you know, you've got kind of a ruckus and kind of a rough atmosphere. These guys are not going to be easy on Jesus. It's just going to be, I don't know. I mean, that'd be kind of uh, unnerving to see all these guys there.
how many, uh, it's been like years since I've seen that movie. I can't remember. How many people did it show coming to I don't remember either, but there were quite a few. Was there? Yeah. I and they were kind of, they were kind of, they, this may have been too much, but they were kind of roughing him up a little bit as they went. I so remember, yeah. I yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I always wondered whether, how they stopped a big fight from occurring after Peter's obviously drew his sword and swung at at least one of them. Who knows? Well, I think how they stopped it is Jesus reattached his ear. <laughs> that, that's, that usually doesn't. Yeah, but. You know, you would think they nobody would have noticed that if they had all joined in a melee at this at the site of Peter. Yeah, good you know, point. I could see him pull out his seer, out his sword and swiping at the guy, and then the whole crowd just you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could. And, unless you know, I guess I always pictured at that point being Jesus, like saying, you know, stop, put away the sword, and and you know, maybe so take, take me, I'm not resisting, and then heals the guy and. I have to wonder what the old Garrison was thinking. Here we are, 600 men going and taking 12 guys. What? 600 men, they go almost violent, thinking, I guess, I would be thinking some kind of, somehow violent, 600 men going to get one guy, and one guy, I guess, is you chopped off that. Yeah. And then reattached. I just think it would be kind of a waste of my night, for sure. <laughs> I mean, honestly, not a waste of my night. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't understand that. Although Jesus had been, you know, attracting large crowds, True. so they might have thought, there could be a lot of other people hanging out in this garden. I mean, it's just I don't know that they expected that many in the garden, but I think Jesus spooks them. And, and I think they are determined to get him. I mean, there have been times he's escaped. There has been times he's talking his way out. There have been, I mean, this is their chance. They're not going to blow it this time. I mean, and they don't know. I mean, here's the other thing. What if Jesus tries to run? You know, or whatever. I mean... I think I think they're just they're going to send so many that they've got him. They're going to overpower him. I mean, nothing's going to be able to stop him. Well, now, Jesus knew this was going to happen. Yes, he did. Who else in the group knew it was going to happen? Judas, because he was doing it. But I don't think the disciples had a clue. Jesus had sort of told them, but they didn't ever really get it. So I don't think they're realizing what's what's going to happen until it's suddenly right here. And Peter does then. You know, after, well, Judas kisses him. I mean, that's such a betrayal, the whole concept of a kiss. It's kind of like the high sign he gives them that's okay to spring. They grabbed him, uh, Jesus. And then Peter does draw his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave, who apparently was in the arrest party. Wouldn't that take some dexterity? Can you imagine getting your sword just right to slice a guy's ear off? He missed. missed <laughs> that aim. Totally, yeah, he was aiming for his head. Yeah. Well, then how did he get his ear? Wait, if I saw a sword coming, I'd yeah. be ducking out of the way. Exactly. That's my point. <laughs> yes, th- don't imagine that Peter was actually aiming to slice the ear off. He's well, a still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this could hurt. It's <laughs> really supposed to be a haircut and he got a little close, you know. <laughs> so I think you we're exactly right on this, that, that the guy ducked and Peter aiming for the neck grabbed the ear, got the ear instead. That's pretty uh, close, though. I haven't really thought about that. No. <laughs> 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 would you cut off your ear without 
slicing off your shoulder. Yeah, or, exactly. Yes. You know, you wouldn't come down over the top. Your ear did stop down about right here. Yeah. <laughs> your ear stopped the shoulder. No, I always just. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even if he draws gone. and does something like this and sort of hits him in it. No, I think he was aiming for the neck. That makes a lot of Oh, yeah. something that I've never thought of. That's never been brought up in anywhere I've ever been. You have just not heard me teach this for <laughs> the last four years. And that shows you Peter's courage in a sense. I wonder if he was still sort of smarting from the prediction of his denial. He's going to prove himself right then and there. I mean, because it does seem a little like... What was he thinking? 600 men. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. You've got to take them off. Because you know, right remember how many swords were among them? Two. Two. From Luke 22. So, uh... Twelve hundred swords. Yeah. Where, where is the... Luke 22. Oh, among the five of the reality. Two swords. Luke 22, verse 30, uh, 8. Two versus six hundred. Yeah, yeah. It just kind of, you know, it shows you typical Peter impetuousness, impulsiveness. You know, he's gonna, he's gonna defend him. You know, he's gonna get it. And uh, Jesus, I, I really like what he says in forty-eight and forty-nine. This is like, you know, I don't know, kind of burns them. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. You know, it's like he's sort of taunting them. What's the deal? Uh, yeah, I mean... Maybe there were 600 men before. It's just like, what do you think I was going to do? You know, why'd you do all this? It's like, it's like, you know, you thought I was a robber. Now, I don't know. This is probably too complicated to be worthwhile. But it is interesting. Jesus <laughs> had called the temple a robber's den instead of a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, those from the temple arrest Jesus right after his prayer as if he were a robber. I think that may be too subtle for you know, it to actually be in the, in the prediction. But it's interesting that you know, he's called the temple a den of thieves and now they come out to get him as if he were the thief. <clears throat> well, now what about verse 50 says they all left him and fled but evidently one guy stayed behind briefly a young man wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they grabbed this guy the rest of them have fled they grabbed the young man and what happens he left a sheet <laughs> yeah goes off naked <laughs> why in the world do we have this little incident recorded well, uh, this is funny. Actually, I never thought about these two verses until uh, it came up yesterday in our Bible study at church. And uh, I, do you think it? I, I don't know. It came up that it, it's Mark himself, probably. Or at least that's a lot of assumptions anyway, because it's not recorded in any other 
pretty much right. So, I mean, I don't know why he maybe just wanted to put a little note of himself in there. I don't know why he didn't put, like, me, but maybe just, like, for the record, I was there. Which, I don't know. Yeah, I was saying, would you say I was running through the car naked? I mean, <laughs> no, well, <that's> okay, honestly. <laughs> I would. I think we'd be funny. Kind of like Kilroy was here. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh... So I suspect it is Mark. I'm I'm willing to uh, bite on that one, but I don't <laughs> think the point was to kind of add his little signature in the corner. Why do you think it was Mark? Um, because it's <laughs> typical for the gospel writers, like John especially, to write about himself without giving a name, and it it I don't know. It just strikes. We know Mark was a young man. And we can't prove it. We know he's from Jerusalem. But it just, it strikes you as kind of a curious enough incident that I can see this being Mark. There's no way to prove it. That is a very common consensus. <coughs> but there is no way to prove it. But I, I think it sort of fits what John does when he talks about the disciple Jesus loved or, you know, something like that and never gives them a name. So would Mark he wasn't apostle. So he was with the group coming to arrest. No, I suspect he was with the disciples. There were probably more than just the twelve. I got a little, a little bit note there. It says, uh, it says the eleven disciples were gone, but a certain young man followed him. Only Mark tells of this incident, and many believe that this young man was Mark himself. How else uh, would he have known the story, and why else should he have included it? If it was Mark, and if the Last Supper was at his home that evening, he could easily have risen from bed and pulled on a wooden cloth and followed Jesus and the disciples. I think that's a I think that's a very logical explanation of who it was. I don't think it makes any difference. I don't think that's the point. I do think that's a logical explanation. I suspect it probably was Mark, but I don't think that really adds or, or diminishes much from the text. I think his point for including it was something else. What does this whole little incident tell you? That sometimes. I mean, there was this follower of Jesus who was so afraid that he ran away naked. I mean, he he left his clothes. That's usually not something you leave behind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you might leave your briefcase or, or something, um, but you're not going to leave your clothes. Yeah. Particularly if that's all you... I mean, it's not like he's leaving his coat, even. Yes. He's not pulling out of his coat. This was apparently That's all they had on. sort of all he was wearing. You would say that this young man did what? Panicked. You know, he's got to get away. He was the last one, perhaps, with Jesus. I mean, all the rest of them have left him and fled. And this young man, who's more loyal, is loyal for about that long. And all it takes is for them to grab him. And he's willing to, to flee off naked in his panic to get away from this. I think it shows the complete failure of Jesus and disciples to support him at this critical moment. They all left and fled, even this young guy who has to leave his, his covering, his linen sheet in their hands and just get away, you know, they're, 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 just, they're, they're just totally, you know, uh, scared to death and getting away. You know, what would you have done if you had been there? It's perhaps appropriate for us to think about our own commitment. You know, um, one person lingered, but when he was grabbed, 
he failed the test too and hightailed it out of there. So what would we do? When do we flee? When are we, when do we get away from our identification of ourselves with Jesus? I just think it's, it's worth thinking about what we'd have done in that situation or how many other situations we may get scared and flee from our post, right? I was going to say that uh, I actually have thought about that sometimes. Not that we can actually physically flee as they could have back then. But, uh, but you know, if, if it comes up to where, you know, like I like to, I talk to people all the time at work about the Bible. I try to anyway, you know, people listen to stuff and want to talk with me. And uh, or saying where I am. And sometimes if, uh, if a Christian doesn't want to talk about it or, you know, or just doesn't, I guess I think if someone uh, kind of gets too scared or denies the fact they're a Christian or doesn't, uh, I had this in my head and that's not coming out right. But uh, you know what I mean? If someone's gonna deny their faith or kind of, you know, not want to talk about it, it's kind of like we're and here it makes sense. Uh, it's like we're running away from. Exactly. Know, like, no, I think that makes perfect sense. Okay. I think that's exactly <laughs> what we're doing. Okay. You know, if we are trying to hide the fact we're a Christian or we avoid being where we can shine our light and show the Lord, you know, well, aren't we doing the same thing? Out of the same motive. If we don't let Christ shine through us. Exactly. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I mean, they all did. So it's a good warning. It's a good lesson. Good thing to think about. And poor Jesus. Here are his closest companions who won't stand with him in his hour of greatest need. Comments and thoughts further on this. <clears throat> I wonder where they grabbed him after they let all the disciples go. I mean, there was obviously 600 men there, yet they apparently weren't interested in the apostles or disciples, or they would have became them at the time too. But this guy was with them. It may, I don't you know, if it's indicating whether they were trying to grab him to arrest him or just to point out, say, hey, this is one of them also, or like they did later with Peter. You know, Peter followed at a distance. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have a good answer to that. Uh, but, yeah, that's, it's, I don't know. Also, the, the other one of the other accounts mentions that when they can't approach Jesus and he said who he was, they all fell down and bowed down before him. It's like they didn't want to arrest him, or you know, they didn't want to uh, he had to tell them twice who he was, and yeah, I'm the one you're looking for. <laughs> so we talked about how, you know, how they may have uh, why they sent so many or what they did. Well then, when, even when they had that many, they were still like they fell back. Yeah. You, you go arrest him. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. fell back. Yeah. Just kind of spooked them. I mean, it's like they are exceptionally tense about the whole process. I don't know if they didn't have any clue what their assignment was. All right, you soldiers, <laughs> here's your secret mission: <laughs> follow this man and arrest whoever he kisses. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be it. We didn't know it was going to be Jesus. <laughs> no, I mean. I don't know. I think they're. I think they're almost unreasonably frightened. I think they're. Jesus. Well, think about all that Jesus has done. I just think. They've done this in the daytime. <laughs> well, no, because of the riot of the people. But yeah, I don't know. 
Jesus has kind of he's worried and they were probably also somewhat tense just because it's the Passover season you've got all these extra people in the city something could happen so I mean the soldiers are already on high alert so to speak and now they're sent out to go get this guy so I mean there are going to be more people around even in the middle of the night there are going to be more opportunities for something to go wrong and you know maybe we ought to say this I mean deep down in their subconscious don't some of these guys realize what they're doing is wrong and don't you have a lot more fear and insecurity when you're doing something that you're afraid is wrong I mean, you know, it just, it, man, that that makes a difference when your conscience is bothering you. Other thoughts? I always thought that the young man of 51 wasn't wearing his legislative coat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always wondered if he was, I mean, I thought he was a little, maybe nuts. I mean, that he only went out with a linen shoe. The point was... He wasn't properly clothed even to start with. Well, I'm assuming that most people didn't just go around wearing linen sheets. I don't know. So I was always wondering what's the significance of that. Maybe he was in a hurry when he got. Followed. I don't know. I guess I don't know that that would be in town. What did they? What did they wear? A wrap, a robe, or who knows? That may have been. I guess the fact that it says wearing nothing but a linen sheet struck me as that was not the norm. Yeah. I always thought it was kind of like their tunic undergarment type mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, so he went out in his underwear. Basically. Of course, that was. But that it still covered. <laughs> right, no, no, no. But. So I thought the guy wasn't all there. <laughs> I like what Ryan read. You know, that maybe Mark joined them. He saw them. You know, he rushed out of the house to, to go with him to the garden or something like that. Didn't have time to put his clothes on. I don't know. So is he wearing more of a coat or underwear? What well, was this supposed to be? Well, uh, I, I don't mean, know what they wore back then. Because I, uh, uh, I, I have wondered about that as well because <coughs> they talk about um, later on with the crucifixion. Was Jesus naked or not? Because they took his clothes and, they, you know, and so then... So the word naked is not always used to mean completely without clothing. That is true. And so, and so you can't use this passage to and be sure that he was stark naked. John Claxton promoted it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> John Isaiah. Claxton at the Isaiah study. I forgot what he said. But. You want to know that passage in Isaiah, if anybody's ever tried to use that one. Oh, yeah, Isaiah, yeah. Around. That was brilliant. You had another recording. You know, that whole conversation. If <laughs> anybody ever tried to say that's okay to go around naked. Because God told Isaiah. First Samuel 18. Talks about being with Saul. Saul. Yeah, and I'm thinking about to also like James 2, 15. If it's the same word in the original, I think it is, I'm not sure. If a brother or sister is without clothing, but literally naked and in need of daily food, but didn't necessarily mean they were stark naked. Um, I think that's an open question. I don't know whether, you know, he had some underwear on uh, and he was naked in the sense he didn't have normal clothing. 
uh, or at least completely naked. I don't know. I don't know that it makes any difference. You know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, even in our society, probably not. But I would feel quite naked if I was in my underwear. I have to wonder, like, if you didn't like just like see Jesus and the disciples like walking. Like going towards the garden if you live near the garden and saw them out the window and decided to follow them. Yeah. Something I mean, like that. It would wouldn't be the first time somebody randomly followed Jesus. Now, without clothing, probably, hopefully. <laughs> only time. But, I mean, I just can't help but wonder if it was just was curious. Yeah. I don't think that's the main point. I think the main point is that the, the linen sheet part just tells us how panicked he was because that's all he was wearing. And, and when it was he was grabbed, He's willing to sacrifice his only clothes he's got, you know, to get away. We had the longest discussion about the weirdest thing. I'm sorry. We're talking about Jesus' prayer. We're talking about the naked guy running the garden. All right, other comments or questions? They didn't have blue jeans back then, so they started putting women thing on. Could they? Could they? I mean, if I saw Jesus just... You know, I, I was still on the first thing I had and go follow. You know what I mean? I don't know. I think that's what happened. But I don't know. <laughs> Makes sense to me. <laughs> All right. 53 to 65. <clears throat> and they led Jesus away to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any, for many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, and we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. And the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and to, and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. So, Peter, where is he? They've taken Jesus now to the gathering of the Jewish leaders, but where's Peter? At a distance. Yeah. Comes into, finally, the courtyard of the high priest. It's it's not exactly like Peter's following Jesus anymore. He's sort of trailing along behind him, but he wants to know what's going on. He's, he does care, and so he's he's there at the fire in the courtyard where he can see what's going on with Jesus. And this is kind of a story within a story because we're going to pick back up the idea of Peter in verse fifty-four down in verse sixty-six. In the meantime, you've got the trial. You've got the chief priests, and you've got the whole council, the the Sanhedrin. And uh, they're having some sort of a hearing, a trial, or whatever. But they're doing something that doesn't seem very normal. As they're having this hearing, what are they doing? Receiving false testimony. 
<laughs> not just receiving it. <clears throat> yeah, they're soliciting it. They they are, you know, they're trying to find testimony against Jesus. You know, theoretically, they're objective judges who are just trying to examine the evidence, but they're not at all. They are trying to find something they can pin on Jesus. And they find a bunch of false witnesses who give testimony against him. What's the problem? Yeah. They, they, they're, they're not consistent. Uh, they, they contradict each other or contradict themselves under cross-examination. Now, I want you to think about something here. I mean, in a trial, obviously, witnesses are important, even in our trials, to establish the truth of you know, an accusation. But, in this trial, are the Jewish leaders trying to decide what the verdict is going to be? Why not? They've already decided what they're going to do. They've already decided what they're going to do. Why? Why? That's my question. Is if they've already decided what they're going to do, why bother parading a bunch of false witnesses? Why not just convict him and do it? They don't have the authority because of the Roman government. Well. They don't, but that's not the point here. Because when they took Jesus to Pilate, they don't accuse him before Pilate of the same thing they convicted him of in the Jewish trial. The Jewish trial, they eventually convict him of what? Blasphemy. Which the Romans wouldn't care anything about. So, you remember what the accusations were before Pilate? He was perverting the nation. That he was setting himself as king. And he didn't pay taxes to Caesar. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which is the most outrageous of the charges, because just a, you know, very few days before, Jesus had specifically said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So that was just a bald-faced lie with nothing to support it whatsoever. That's Luke 23, too, is where you got the accusations. So I don't think they're trying to do this for Rome. I have to wonder if they didn't have to do it for their own conscience, to, to make, make it seem to justify what they were doing. Um, or else maybe there were some scribes and Pharisees in here that weren't sold on the idea and had to have some reason to do it. Or even maybe to be consistent with the people. You know, the yeah, people I think it's all that. I think they are trying to... I don't know, put on a charade of justice and seriousness and, and trying to sort of, I think that does pacify their conscience. I think, you know, they, I mean, they would feel like idiots if they didn't have a trial, if they didn't have witnesses, if they didn't cross-examine the witness. I mean, you know, that's part of the legal procedure. It reminds me, this just came to my mind, and it's probably a stupid illustration, but whenever, uh, in, in some of the people who've moved to Brazil, uh, it's dependent from era to era, but sometimes they've had to have a theological degree to get in. And, like, I know two or three that have needed a degree in theology, uh, but they didn't have a degree in theology. So what do you do? You buy one. Yes. 
Now, <laughs> several, several of the guys did something that was interesting. They went to a school in southern Indiana that they could buy one from. And the interesting thing is this school actually had classes. You had to take, you know, by, by correspondence and, and tapes and so forth. And, and they actually went through sort of the ritual of actually teaching something and expecting something. But it was a joke still. It, would, it required a little. But they counted, oh, all kinds of credit. You know, for these different guys, they counted life experience credit, they counted anything they'd ever taken, and so, and they always came down to about five or six classes that they'd need, which cost, you know, like, I don't remember, like maybe $500 a class. And I think, well, that's not a legitimate theology degree to take five or six classes by listening to somebody. And, and the grading was not particularly difficult. The classes were semi-serious. Uh, but I think it's a matter of appeasing their own conscience. It's sort of a degree factory, but trying to, trying to masquerade as something that you know, actually is serious. Um, I, I think they're trying to do the same thing. I think, absolutely, they've decided the verdict. But, but I think for their own consciences, they have to make it look good. I think also they are trying to persuade the reluctant council members. I mean, after all, who do we know was on that council? <clears throat> Nicodemus. Maybe Gamaliel. Joseph of Arimathea. So there's at least a couple in Nicodemus and Joseph that were secret disciples of Jesus. Nicodemus even, back in John 7, he sort of stood up for Jesus. He said, well, in the law, we don't, we don't you know, punish a man before we hear him, do we? <laughs> so I can imagine Nicodemus, you know, they've got, to, they've got to make it look good. And for the people. I mean, they're already afraid of a riot. What if the people find out they convicted Jesus with no trial? So in all this, they go through this charade of a trial. They're trying to bribe the false witnesses. They just can't, they can't even get it together well enough to get these witnesses to tell the same story. And so, so this is frustrating. It's like, you know, they can't really even get anything to do. And finally, what does the high priest do? Questions him himself. Exactly. Questions Jesus says, well, don't you have an answer? Don't you hear what they're testifying? Well, I haven't testified anything consistent yet, but be, be that as it may, I think he wanted Jesus to incriminate himself. And what does Jesus uh, say in verse 61? Nothing. Nothing. So he questions him again. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, tearing his clothes. The high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? <laughs> You've heard the blasphemy. We can dispense with the witness. He's, he's, she just blasphemy. Hey, this is horrifying to him. He's just, he's just outraged. we got to do something. And the, it's all a big farce. It's laughable. But that finally, this brilliant stroke on the part of the high priest brilliant tactic alleviated the need for witnesses which was not going anywhere fast and uh, you know got him to incriminate himself what if Jesus had not said anything wouldn't he be convicted by the law that if there were witnesses and the accused remained silent then he was convicted well but the 
problem is they haven't gotten no two witnesses to tell the same story yet. You gotta have at least two. You got the same. Two or three witnesses have to agree. To them. I think that's what Jesus said. They needed help. Exactly. I think Jesus is giving them a hand purposely. They might have been forced to release him. And that wouldn't have gone along with the program. There are several times in this that it looks to me like Jesus gives them a hand. I mean, stop and think about it. I mean, he told Judas, Judas, you know, it's time. You know, go on out in John. And then Jesus, when he goes out, goes where? To the very place he always went. So Judas could find him there. And then Judas isn't the one who found him. Jesus ends up finding them and saying, here I am, you know, I'm Jesus, come on, you know, it's time for this. And then he helps the Jews out here, and then he helps Pilate out, you know, to some extent. I mean, what if Jesus, before Pilate, we'll look at this later, uh, not tonight, but, but if Jesus before Pilate had, like, you know, tried to plead his innocence, I'm not sure Pilate was brazen enough to convict him. But Jesus refused to speak in his own defense. And so forth and so on. I think this is Jesus purposely saying something that will finally give them the accusation that they need. So now, what... well, how can he keep silent sometimes when people ask him stuff? I've never asked him. I know they're Napoleon. I never understood why he doesn't always answer questions. Well, sometimes they're not very good questions. <laughs> I mean, look at verse 60. Do you not answer? What is it that these men keep testifying against you or, t- or testifying against you? What's that supposed to mean? I haven't testified anything consistent against him yet. Jesus supposed to what's Jesus supposed to do? Explain why these false bribe witnesses can't get their story straight? Oh, I mean, you know <laughs> what kind of a question was that anyway? You know, it's like, you know when he says, Do you not answer? If I were Jesus I'd have said, Was there a question? <laughs> you know? There's not uh, a question anywhere in our future. Yeah. And, and and I think Jesus doesn't answer before Pilate in part for that very reason. If he had, I think Pilate would have released him. I think Jesus has to be quiet, so so it so Pilate will convict him. Mm-hmm. Really is doing so yeah. I, that's what I think. <clears throat> and, and, wow, I mean, when you think about that, not only I mean, it'd be hard enough to hear the false accusations remain silent. You know, I'm reminded of obviously Isaiah 53, where you know, it should be laid like a lamb to slaughter, not say a word, you know, keep his mouth shut. It'd be even hard enough to defend yourself, but even more to try and get yourself killed. I mean, honestly. Yeah. I mean. He's, he's giving them the ammunition that they need. And, you know, of course, Jesus just asked in the garden, take this cup from me. And instead, he's doing the Father's will and helping, if, if you will, the cup come to him quicker. So, you know, I can't even imagine how hard that would be. I mean, there's a lot of times I try and get myself out of trouble, let alone get myself, trying to get myself killed. <laughs> if he would have kept silent and not answered the question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? It seems to me it'd almost be like you'd be denying it, in a sense. And, I mean, there are some things you have to own up to. And it was, is it, I think it's in another, another version, 
isn't he charged by an oath? To yeah, he's put under oath in his answer. So that he has to, under the law of the tradition, answer something. I'm not sure they were forced to answer, but he's put under oath to answer. Do they have a different answer? I don't think so. <laughs> um, well, but I mean, I don't know about that. Because how many times in the Gospels does Jesus admit to being the Christ? For an exact number? Well, it'd be alright with me. I think there is an exact number. Yeah. This one and how many other times? The woman at the well. The woman at the well. Those are the two I can think of. Jesus doesn't normally admit to being the Christ. You can see why with the misconceptions they had about the Messiah. Yeah. But so I don't I'm not sure Jesus would have felt like he had to answer this question. I don't know, it may be so. When Peter tells me he's the Son of God, he admits it. He just tells me he's the Son of God. Yeah, Son of God, yes, Messiah, no. And this is um, Matthew 26, 63. Uh, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. And it goes on. The footnote that I have, which is what we may think of it, is um, says, I adjure you is equivalent to I command you. Being under oath, Jesus had to reply. Good. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. <laughs> but you love the, the high priest here. You know, <laughs> breathes a sigh of relief, but acts like he's horrified. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, they, they convict him of blasphemy. Really, I think they become guilty of the very blasphemy they accuse Jesus of when it's all said and done. And then they spit on him, blindfold him, beat him with their fists, and say to him, Prophesy. It's like, tells you hit you. You're the Christ. Come on, who hit you? It's just, ah. what would you have done if you'd have been Jesus right about that? <laughs> yeah. How many times would that have taken the show? <laughs> I think I would have, you know, yanked their hands off of their of their arms. I think I'd have grabbed their tongues and you know lapped it around their neck or something. I mean, you know, it would have, you know, I would have had the power. But Jesus did. You know, they're taunting him, but it's like, you know, I mean, it's like the stupidity of, of you know, trying to, you know, torment and tease a Doberman or something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what if he gets mad? <laughs> you know, uh, but but they do it, and Jesus just does nothing. He lets them, you know, just treat him in a very belittling, humiliating way. Maintains control of his great power. Comments? In 64, it says they all condemned him and get his. that referring also to maybe Nicodemus, who is it? I don't know. Even though, the, even though he blasphemed in front of them, did they not still need two witnesses that would agree who were not part of the. 
don't think so. I think I think they've all got now. They've got to. They've, they've got, got their own witnesses. Yeah, absolutely. They got all these witnesses now. They've all heard it. I don't know. I don't know about the legalities of some of this. There have been a lot of studies done on perhaps the Jews broke their own laws and rules about trials. One complication is we have no certain and certainly accurate source of what the laws were at this time. The laws we've got are from, I think, two or three hundred years later. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It was definitely, this was definitely no ordinary trial. I mean, the truth is that if we're guessing right, sometime between 12 and 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You normally don't have trials at 12 and 2 o'clock in the morning. And, and, and surely it was against the law to try to hire false witnesses to condemn the accused. <laughs> you wouldn't go. We hope. It's okay, Chicago. <laughs> 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 yes, indeed. <laughs> Chicago. Well, and like there were there were supposedly rules about you couldn't have a trial at night. Yeah, I mean that's the debated yes, issue. Yeah. And later there were were these rules in force in Jesus' day. I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe they did break a bunch of their own rules. Sure. Other comments and thoughts for 65. Yeah. Why exactly did they want to kill Jesus? Like, I know that sounds weird, but... Well, no, it doesn't really. Uh, Well, they would have said because of his blasphemy, probably. But I think the truth was... Uh, maybe a, a, a combination of factors. Jesus stole their followers, for one thing. Um, and Jesus broke their traditions and got a lot of people follow. You know, like he was dangerous. Um, I don't know. There's probably. Would that make you want to kill somebody? They did in their case. I suppose they were jealous. I think they were. Yeah, I mean. One of the texts says, I think it's Matthew, <coughs> that the pilot perceived that they delivered him up because of envy. Oh, yeah. So, that that's a big factor right there. Yeah, and this would have, if, if he's right and the people are believing him, then it's going to do away with their, their office completely. There's no more scribes and Pharisees and priests. You know, you're out of a job. Can you, that's, that's why, I mean, today, why can't somebody be elected and go into Washington and change change everything? Let's do away with all this bureaucracy. Well, because you're going to do away with my job, and I'm going to make it a pretty good living at this. <laughs> Got all these people catering to me and bribing me. And <laughs> John 11, um, when they meet to talk about killing Jesus, um, they're worried about the Romans coming and taking away their nation. Mm-hmm. That's when Caiaphas says, it's better for one man to die than the whole nation to die. Take away our place and our nation. They're worried about the nation, and they're worried about their role in the nation. Good point. Because if, if a strong Jewish leader arises, then he could lead them against the Romans and cause problems. So, I mean, if they're even if they're viewing him as a physical, earthly deliverer messiah, then... Well, they would have been happy with that. They were viewing him as a physical, earthly imposter. But they didn't think he could do it. Yeah, no, they didn't. So they didn't want to risk... I mean, they didn't (laughs) want to risk the... 
what was going on because a lot of them were pretty well set up at this point. Yeah, that's a good point. Alright, well, why don't we stop here then and we'll uh, work on uh, 66 next uh, Thursday if that's okay with this household. Mm -hmm. Are we again same time, same place? Same time.